So um, we're in this series. It's really got a catchy name. It's called Lent. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, really pretty creative on that one. Uh, and so uh, today we're talking about boundaries. or In other words, I'm also talking about systems. And here's what I mean by that. Um, have you ever noticed over time how there are really good systems or really good intentions that get co-opted or corrupted? Um, have you noticed how over time lots of things... Um, started with really good mission or purpose and then some kind of bureaucratic system develops over time and you go, huh, like I think there's better ways to do that and so you're not sure what to do with it. I mean, I could talk about things like welfare and disability. Like some people really need that to make it through life and yet we know over time where there's a lot of hoops people have to jump through that sometimes people get benefits that shouldn't and people who should get them don't and we know that it started with good intention. We could talk about nonprofits to start with great missions, but over time they exist for the nonprofit to exist. We could talk about the church that initially most local churches are driven with a mission to help reach people that no one else is reaching and then to help disciple people to greater levels of discipleship. But over time, churches are driven by their personal preferences rather than the mission. It happens in lots of churches. It's actually a cycle of churches that leads to their death. We could talk about it in terms of all kinds of other things, of educators who are politicians that go in with the right, right heart, right mind, but over time, they're just warped. And they see the system, and they think it'll never change, and what they're doing doesn't matter. I mean, we could talk about how there are millions of dollars of scholarships for college students. They go unused every year. But as someone who tried to find some of those, they're almost impossible to find. And yet... Some will find it, but most won't, and it exists, and it will just keep accruing year after year because no one could figure out how to access that. So the things that were created for the benefit of others often don't become benefit for others. Have you noticed that? Or sometimes we'll go, well, I think this system is broken, and then if we're really honest, maybe your perception or my perception is skewed, and it's not broken. I just wish it was different. How do we know whether our perception of that is the better truth, or if it's actually in a good position, right? I, by the way, I, I don't have answers for all these questions. I'm just throwing these out there today, just so we're clear. But I wanted you to know that these things exist, and it's not new. Broken systems have been around for a really long time. In fact, um, it's not the first time in human history that we evaluate and see broken systems. Jesus was most angered by a broken system. Today we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22 in just a few moments. But, but I think it's important to kind of set up the backdrop for what we're going to look at in these words of John. So um, if you were Jewish, there were all kinds of holidays you celebrated. You celebrated lots of holidays. It's a great thing. You know, like everyone loves a good party. And so people would go to Jerusalem. And the goal was to go at least once a year if you were Jewish. And you, if you lived outside 15 miles, the goal was to go at least once in your lifetime and if you live inside 15 miles, the goal is to go every single year. And you and I are like, 15 miles, like, that's not that far. It is when you're walking, you know. Like, <laughs> so they had to go at least once a year. And so the city of Jerusalem was about, in Jesus' day, about 50,000 people. But during the celebration, the, the remembrance of Passover, the city swelled to 250,000 people. It's five times its size. Now, I don't know if you're good with math, but even like big cities that have lots of hotels, they don't usually have enough hotels for five times the size of the city. And in a day in which there were very few hotels or places for you to stay, 
I don't know where all these people went. So just imagine this city jam-packed with people. People are everywhere. I'm sure they're sleeping on the streets. They're sleeping in other people's houses. People have opened up their homes. It was like Airbnb blew up. And so what do we do with this in this city that which Jesus walks in? And so there are a couple of things that are important to know as we think about this. Um, one, if you went to Jerusalem for Passover, you're required to do two things. Uh, one, you had to do no matter what. You had to pay the temple tax every single year. That was just appropriate. That's what you did. Um, and then you also were to offer a sacrifice for the Passover. And you did those two things at the temple. Um, now, those were not bad things, by the way. The temple, temple tax went to further the work of the temple. It created the space. It just maintained it. It was, you know, um, it took, at Jesus' day, it was 46 years the thing had been built, and they had another 20 years before it actually got finished. So it took a long time to build and to maintain and to keep up. And so it was appropriate. If that's the place where God's spirit dwelt, it was appropriate to pay the temple tax. And then you would offer sacrifices, and we go through the Old Testament. If you've been reading along with us, in our annual reading plan, you've been like stuck in Leviticus, and now you're in Numbers, and you're like, oh, finally, I can apply what I've been reading, because otherwise it makes no sense to me. Right, I get it. I'm with you. Um, but, but we see like this whole idea is that, that God is holy and desires for our people to be holy. And so I will offer the best I have to God. Again, not a bad thing in its, current, in its context in that day. The problem as we'll see over time, is systems can be twisted and broken. And what we find with Jesus is he reorients everything. And sometimes his reorientation of the world even reorients us. And so this is kind of the backdrop as we begin to look at the Gospel of John today. And John, it's important to note, John was a follower of Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. Two of the four Gospel writers were actually disciples of Jesus, Matthew and John. Matthew writes for a predominantly Jewish audience, and he kind of throws in all these kind of sacrifices and holidays and all these things. But John writes from the perspective of one who not only encountered Jesus as teacher, but as Lord and as friend. And John writes, and it's, you can just see John's heart kind of through the words of the book of John. If I was going to tell you to read one book again and again in the Bible, and only one book, it would be the book of John. If you use all you had, I think it would be enough to get the heart of God. And so what we see here is John, um, actually in chapter 20, verse 31, he writes these words so that we can understand why he wrote this book. Here's what he wrote. He said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John wrote the entire book for that singular purpose that you might know that through Jesus, God wants to save the whole world. And that through Jesus... He wants you to enter into right relationship with him. That through Jesus, you may have life in his name. And so then we see this text in John chapter 2. And, and honestly, i got to be honest with you, as we kind of look at this text, um, there's some question about when in the life of Jesus it happened, because some of the gospel writers put it a little different spot. But here's what no one's arguing, that it happened. So here's the thing for us today. If you're like, go home and you're one of those people who researches, like after we talk about this stuff, it's like, hmm, I wonder what Google tells me. Well, uh, one, Google's not always the best source, but that's a whole other conversation. So here's what John writes in John chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. 
He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, I talked about the temple and the Passover, and we talked about how we're going into Jerusalem for Passover, but a couple things that are important for us to talk about. Um, the temple was supposed to be the place in which the very presence of God dwelt. It was the place where heaven and earth connected. It was the place you went to be near God. It was to be the place of worship. It was a place of community life. It was central to the Jewish understanding of themselves as a people. Like, this was the most important place in their community. I don't know that I can ever give you anything in our day to give you perspective of how important it was to them. And so they would show up, and people would show up, and they would go to the temple, and they would have to pay their temple tax. But they had to give their money in Galilean or temple shekels, right? That was the only way you could pay. So um, the problem was, for the common person, most of us, if we lived in that day, we would have had Roman money or Greek money or Palestinian money. But we would not have had Galilean or temple shekels. We just wouldn't have had them. It wouldn't have been something we used. People didn't take them, really. I mean, it was pretty much only used in the temple. So you had to exchange your money at the temple to pay your temple tax. Now, your temple tax was um, a half a half shekel, which basically, to give you perspective, um, was two days' wages. So you had to give two days' wages annually for your temple tax. Not atrocious, but that's what it was. So if you came in, you would bring your Greek or Roman money, and you would go to the money changers, right? And they would exchange your money, and they would give you an exchange rate, and they would make a profit. Okay, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, you'll find that no scholar anywhere will argue that the idea that the money changers would make anything is wrong. In fact, they all say it was expected that they would make something. Otherwise, why would you do it? No one's going to sit there all day and make nothing. That makes no sense. So I was thinking of how to explain this, right? Um, I went on a mission trip years ago, and we had money to exchange in a foreign country, and they said, well, don't exchange at the airport. Well, it's really easy because it's right there. And they're like, yes, but your exchange rate will be awful. Wait until we get you to a bank and exchange your money at the bank because the rate will be more favorable. Okay, so I didn't do that. The problem was the only place you could exchange was the temple. There was no other option. There was no other bank you could go to. It was only the temple where you could exchange your money. And had the bankers offered a fair exchange rate, no one would have been upset by it. The problem was, I mentioned it was two days wages, right, for the half shekel that you need to pay your temple tax. They charged you three days wages. Now, like a reasonable rate, like in our day, we're like, all right, the ATM that charges me a dollar because it's not my bank. Seems fair, right? I mean, I could go to my bank, but if I go to this one, they charge me a dollar. Okay. Or if you're like our credit union, they actually give you money back. It's kind of great. But anyway, so you go to the exchange rate, you exchange your money, but you actually have to give them another day's wages. So they're ripping you off. 
It's a ripoff. But you have no choice. I mentioned also you had to give a sacrifice, right, because it's Passover. And so you bring your animal. Let's say you came from 15 or more miles away. You walked that animal all the way to the temple. You brought your best. Here's the problem. They had animal inspectors. But you had to pay to inspect your animal. Do you know how often your animal was good enough? Never. Your animal was never good enough. So then you not only paid for your animal to be inspected, but you found out your animal was not good enough. So then you would try to sell your animal to someone on the outside where you would not make a good profit because they already knew they had you. And then you would have to buy an animal, one of the approved animals, like the, you know, the FDA approved, like you had to get the temple approved animal from them, the without blemish animal, right? It was not just Angus beef. It was better than that. Whatever they had, like it was perfect. And so you had to pay for that. And by the way, like these are just made up numbers, so, so just bear with me, but to give you perspective, let's say it costs you a dollar for that animal. They were charging you five times that, and you now pay five dollars for that animal. Now, um, I actually, the commentary I read was in pounds. That's still not helpful for us, so pounds and written in the 50s. Still not helpful, so there you go. But, but that was the, the rate. It was five times for the sake of that animal. So now, your animal was never good enough your money was not good enough. You went because you were required to because the law called you to go to the temple. You went because this is the place where God dwelt. This is the place we go to worship. And you got there, and the system crushed the poor and faithful. Crushed. But it's where I have to go. It's the only way I can get near God. I have to go to this place. And so Jesus saw this system of brokenness, and he was angry. Now, I want to be clear, because sometimes I think we paint bad pictures of Jesus. This is not a picture of a man who's cowering in the corner, or who is, who's weak. And this is a guy who is probably a stonemason. We talk about carpenter, it was more like stonemason, because they didn't, there's not, in case you've ever been to the Middle East, there's not a lot of trees, people. Like, they don't really have those. But there's a lot of rock. And Jesus walks in, and he sees this. And we have to always remember God is always the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And Jesus sees this. And so I, I want to be clear today. I, I read about 12 to 15 commentaries this week so I could make sure I, what I said I was accurate in. I read commentaries from nearly every theological tradition. What we can say pretty confidently is Jesus definitely made a whip. And Jesus definitely drove out the animals. But there is no commentator that thinks he drove out the people with the whip. Just so we're on the same page. In fact, that's not what he says in what I read earlier. What we can say clearly is Jesus definitely disrupted systems that oppressed people. And kept them from God. Jesus always eliminates barriers to keep people. So the question for you and I in this is, do we? I mean, I don't think we can picture this scene very well. If I was to try to paint a picture of Jesus going into this place. So remember, the city is packed, 250,000 people in a city of 50,000. And not like in our day where you have like front yards. I mean, like they all live bunched together. Houses were connected. I mean, this is not, not what you think of when you think of a city. 
animals would have been everywhere in the temple courts. In fact, this was probably the Gentile court, which is the only place Gentiles could go if they wanted to worship God. And so this place would have been so crowded. There would have been animals and manure and people and tables and money and yelling and crying. It would have been loud and chaotic. And Jesus says, what? Like, this is a house of prayer. What are you doing? Don't you know my God, my Father, is the God of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized? And you are just oppressing people more in this system that is so broken? He drives out these animals and says, your, your animals, this isn't what God desires. God does not desire your animals. He overturns the tables of the money changers. And I can just see them scurrying around, grabbing their coins. You notice he doesn't um, release the birds, by the way. That's intentional, because the birds were really for the poorest people. So he didn't want them to have to try to figure out an alternative way for them to offer their sacrifice. So all these people, they're screwing for their money, and they're trying to make their systems where they've been taking advantage of other people. They'd ask Jesus this question, where did you get this authority? Now, before I answer that question, I probably need to point out there's a few passages in the Old Testament that are helpful for us as we think about why Jesus did this. So Isaiah 1, 11 to 17, the first line is kind of this. Basically, sacrifices are worthless, and it ends with this line, verse 17. Learn to do right. Seek Justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Same things we find in Jeremiah 7, 22, and Hosea 5, and 6, and 8. And so maybe these words are helpful for us to think about why Jesus is so angry. Anything that keeps people from knowing the love of God is something that Jesus is against. Anything that keeps people from knowing the love of God is something that Jesus is against. So as Jesus is questioned, who are you? What gives you the right? And he answers the question, honestly, it's kind of confusing to us. He says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, if you're like me, you're like, well, okay, Jesus, I don't know if you remember this, but it's taken 46 years to get to this point. In fact, what you, you know, what no one of us know now is going to take another 20 years for them to finish this temple. Like, right, this started a long time ago. There's a lot of rock and stone and gold and all kinds of other stuff. And this has taken forever to build. You think you can rebuild it in three days. That's insane. I'm pretty good at demolition, right? I can destroy stuff with the best of them. But I can't fix anything. And I'm smart enough to know, man, if I can destroy it, I can destroy it in a day. No problem. We can do that. But I can't put it back together. And so what Jesus is saying is crazy to them, but what he's trying to say is this. I'm changing the whole system because your system is broken. They believe, without a doubt, that the temple is a place where God's glory dwells. What Jesus comes to say is this. You think it's here? You think it's in a place made by human hands? You think God's glory dwells in a place made of stone and wood and brick? You think you can build a place where God's presence dwells? Do you not see all of creation? Do you not see the whole world? The whole world is the temple of God. The whole world is the place where the glory of God's presence dwells. It's no secret that he does this in the middle of Passover. 
It's no secret that he would talk about broken systems, talk about the temple and its destruction in the middle of Passover, a season which we remember Israelites' exodus out of Egypt. The Passover was to symbolize this idea that death would pass over the God's people and they would find life and freedom, that they would go from sure death in slavery to freedom. That they would go from oppressed to unleashed. And Jesus speaks into this. And he talks about the temple. He says, don't you know? Don't you know that what I'm trying to say to you is this, that lamb that passed over, the reason that you sacrificed that lamb is so that you can know God's life. Don't you know, by the way, I, I'm that lamb in a way that will pass, all of, all of death will pass over for all people for all time. Don't you know this is who God is? Don't you know that I love you? So this line is a little longer than most lines. Usually I try to give you lines you can write down in like a quick instant. So you may have to like write fast. Sorry, I'll talk slow. Maybe. Jesus' mission was to live and die in such a way that there would no longer be any system, rules, or setting that would keep people from knowing that he came to save all people and give them life. All people, from all backgrounds, from all demographics, with all skin colors, with all languages, all nations. This is who Jesus came for. It's who we should be for. All people from all nations and all backgrounds everywhere. So I have two kind of competing thoughts today as I think about this particular text. Two things that I think that we should glean from this that are valuable for us. And the first one is this. Let's make sure that we don't create obstacles that keep people from knowing God. Because Jesus wants to tear down everything that does that. Let's make certain that we don't create obstacles that keep people from knowing him. I was thinking about all the ways that we as Christians, especially in America, we have a tendency to do that. Like, why are the things that we keep people from God? And so there's a book that was written in 2012, it's kind of old now, I realize, I was thinking it was like not that long ago, but time goes faster. So like a decade ago, the research is 10 years old now. Barna has done more research since this book, and it said the same thing, only the percentages have gotten less in favor of the church. And so Barna did this study in which they surveyed people who didn't call themselves Christians, right? That was the group they wanted. And they asked these questions to describe Christians. So they came up with the list of things that were... Um, that, that kept people from wanting to even think about knowing who Jesus was, to be a part of a church. And these were the lists they came up with. Um, so this is not my list. This is the list that others have given. Uh, here's why I don't want to be Christian. Here's why I'm unchristian. One, they're hypocritical. Okay. Two, they're anti-homosexual. Three, they're sheltered. Four, they're too political. Five, they're judgmental. That's been 10 years. I would say those, those things haven't gotten better. If anything, they've gotten worse. Do we create unnecessary obstacles for people to come to know God? Do we put barriers up? Do we build temples that people can't break into, that they have to jump through hoops to get through? 
Are we the money changers sitting at the table making it really difficult? Are we the ones who say your gift is not good enough? No. Here's the second thing that I think this text says to us today. Maybe you and I have allowed obstacles in our own life to keep us from God. Back to the the temple, right? Um, 46 years to build. Actually, that'd be 66 years to build. Many of us have spent a lifetime putting obstacles between us and God. We've put our own boundaries between us and God. In fact, um, we said, I'm not good enough. I don't have enough to offer. You don't know about my past. My pride is too great. My shame is too big. My guilt is too heavy. Whatever it might be, you don't know about my addiction. You don't know what I have done. You don't know what I've done this. I'm just not good enough. We had another boundary. Or there have been people who in our lives have said, well, you know, if you're going to be Christian, you've got to do this. You've got to vote that way or do that or do this. And so they've put walls in your life. Maybe you didn't put them there, but you've allowed them to be put there by other people or, or even unintentionally, other people have put all these obstacles and walls and barriers so that you think there's no way you can come to Jesus because you just don't see it that way. Here's the good news for us. When Jesus was asked the question, he says, I'll tear this place down. And three days I'll rebuild it. It takes only an instant all those walls, obstacles to be destroyed. Just an instant. And then, the good news, Jesus rebuilds us. He rebuilds us in the image of God in which we were created. Notice how John ended this little section. He said, after the resurrection, the disciples saw clearly Jesus was talking about, he was saying the temple was not that building. The temple of God is you and I. The temple of God is you and I. May we live like it. So, here's my challenge for you and I today. I don't know if there's obstacles you've been putting in front of other people, or there's obstacles you've allowed to be put in front of you, or you... Just find yourself far from God. But whatever it is, here's what Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to come and flip over some tables. Whatever system of oppression you find yourself trapped in, whether it's, it's just a lack of grace for yourself, whether it's a lack of grace or love for others, whatever system of oppression, if you bought in, I have to be hypocritical or political or judgmental, or whatever it is, it's a boundary for you. This is an opportunity today, right here, right now, in this moment, to let Jesus destroy it. To accept that he loves you enough. Whatever system or thing you've bought into doesn't have to be the defining characteristic of your life. We as a church desperately desire to lay those things down and say, whatever it takes, we're going to make sure people come to know the fullness of God. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but if I were to read the Gospels, how does Jesus say people will know you're my disciples? Or that list that people, unchristians, think we're defined by? No, not at all. 
when he says, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Huh. Jude. Maybe we just need to say, God, help me to lay down whatever isn't loving. Whatever keeps me from love, will you help me to lay that down? And so today, we're going to give you an opportunity in a couple different ways to respond to what maybe God is saying to you. One, as we've said throughout the season of Lent, there's a cross in the back, and you can write down whatever it is that's just separating you from God, or you think you need to leave at the foot of the cross, and you can just literally stick it to the cross. But also we think there's something that happens sometimes when we step out in acts of faith. And I know we're in the middle of COVID and all these other things, but, but if you want to come and kneel at the altar, if you want to publicly say with an action of your life, God, I need you, and I'm willing to take a step towards you because I have been so far from you, and I've allowed obstacles, whether they've been by me or by others, to come in front of your love for me. And I know, I know that Jesus will destroy everything that keeps us from your love. So help me to accept that. I want to turn from the life I've been living, and I want to live more deeply committed to following you, whether it's for the first time or just, you just need to say again today to God, God, I need you again. I've allowed too many other things to shape my life in ways that are unhealthy, that are not good, they're not what you have for me. Because what did John write in the beginning? He said, this is how you might find life. And you might allow Jesus to save your life. And it might be our own Passover, our movement from sure death and slavery And so as we sing and pray today, the altar is open if you want to come and kneel and pray. And then at the end of this song, we'll take communion together. So you stand with me at this time if you're in the room and online. You can stand too if you want. Let's pray. And I want to invite you, go write something down that's keeping you from Jesus. Or come and kneel and pray and just say, God, I need you. I want Father, will you help us today to be the kind of unique people of God that come to you with our burdens? May we recognize you desire to destroy every system of oppression that keeps people from you. That you desperately desire for your people to be defined by love. Jesus came to say, look, don't you know that you, you are the temple of God. And so, Father, may we be your temple May we recognize that sometimes there are things in our lives that you need to overturn, that you need to drive out, that you need to flip. Father, whatever those things are today, may we lay them at your feet. I pray today that if there's even one person that's wrestling with something they need to live, leave at your feet. One person who feels this conviction, they want to come and kneel and pray and say yes to you, God, that they would feel the freedom to take a step. And Father, we pray that your love would consume us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name.